From the front lines to the home front, America's military veterans and first responders are committed to serving our nation and our community and protecting our way of life. The Epic Times Battlefield Project, in partnership with the Havoc Journal, gives voice to America's service community and highlights their successes and their struggles, their triumphs, and their tragedies. In their own words and from their own hearts, these are their battlefields. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. I am your host, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charlie Fate, once again bringing you stories from the front lines and the home front. As usual, if you like what we're doing here on Battlefields, please download and share this episode and leave us a five-star review. And if you are interested in being a future guest, our contact information is in the show notes. Today's guests are Seth Allard and Andy Dembo. Andy Dembo is a retired infantry marine gunnery sergeant who spent 17 and a half years in the United States Marine Corps. He completed five deployments, one of which took him to Fallujah, Iraq in November 2004. He is now a graduate student at Wayne State University studying social work, and his goal is to research and advocate for veteran mental health policies and procedures in order to take care of our veterans. Seth Allard is a USMC veteran of Operation Iraqi Freedom, deploying as an infantryman in 2005 and 2008 to Al Anbar Province, Iraq. He holds degrees in history and cultural anthropology, has over 13 years of experience in the field of mental health and health research, and is published on the topics of suicide in Native American and military-slash-veteran communities. Seth is currently a PhD student in the Social Work and Anthropology Dual Doctoral Program at Wayne State University, and he was recently selected for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Research Scholars Program. His current focus is interdisciplinary and collaborative approaches to mental health and suicide in the U.S. Marine Corps. He lives with his wife, son, and dog in southeastern Michigan. From the Global War on Terror with the United States Marine Corps to graduate studies in social work, these are Andy Dimbo and Seth Allard's Battlefields. Seth and Andy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Charlie. It's great to be here. Well, I like to start at the beginning. So, Andy, let's start with you. Can you tell us about how you got into the military, what life was like for you growing up, and what you did when you were in the service? Um, yeah. So, I'm originally from a little town called Pilesville, right above Baltimore in Maryland. and um, <laughs> how I came about the military was it's kind of a funny story, I guess. I, I was approached by a recruiter with a buddy of mine at a at the farm fair. Um, grew up in the country area, and uh, he was talking to my buddy, and he asked asked me about it, and I said, uh, I don't, I'm not into the GI Joe thing. And he laughed at me and said, That's cool. I'll see you in my office in six months. And I, I snickered and said, Okay, man. And about three months later, I was sitting in the office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's funny i was just you know i was just a young kid i was, was like 18 at the time and i was just working construction convenience store jobs and and my buddy said look man we got to get something going with our lives we're not doing anything um and he, he just kind of explained what the marine was and i didn't even know what a marine was and uh so i said all right well let's go travel the world and get paid for it <laughs> and that's, that's really all i knew <laughs> And I went in and the recruiter um, who was at the farm fair wasn't there, but I talked to some guy and he made me take the pretest. And uh, I was an arrogant punk kid and he told me I had to qualify. And I said, I can qualify for anything. And uh, and as I'm taking the pretest, the original recruiter walked in and, said, and laughed and goes, ha ha, I told you to be in my office. And it kind of went, <laughs> <laughs> went from there. <laughs> um, 
so yeah um and so i joined and i decided to join the infantry um because I, I grew up shooting hunting and uh, i just said i just you know i like guns i want to shoot some guns and you know travel the world and get paid for it and they said all right and um and i started my my time april april 8th of 2001 um so i was in the infantry for my whole career i did some other billets i was a recruiter for a while um I did I did some rifle range training in Paris Island, uh training some recruits. I was an instructor for operations course. Uh, and I finished my time being a combat instructor at the School of Infantry and then uh running the operations center uh for the for the infantry training battalion. Um and then I got I had gotten hurt, so they were offering the early retirement. That was the last year for anybody that had a service-connected disability. Um so I took advantage of that, got the early retirement and uh brought me here now i live right outside of detroit um with my wife and two of my kids i have a son who lives in florida with his mom uh, i see him all the time he come you know comes up here i go down there and uh, now i go to school um my graduate program for my master's of social work and and i coach my daughter's uh little league and travel softball teams so that's a that brings me to where i am right now i guess <laughs> <laughs> So, well, well, that sounds like a, a pretty interesting path from county fair to the Marine Corps to <laughs> to master's degree. So yeah. those v- very different paths. I understand how you got into the Marine Corps and you were an infantry Marine. What kind of things, what kind of experiences did you have as an infantry Marine in oh. what, what, I mean, during the height of the, what we came to know as a global war on terror? So it like i said i joined technically before the war started um and actually on 9-11 i was checking into my very first unit um we got to hawaii uh hawaii was my first duty station and we're six hours behind there we got there about one o'clock in the morning when we got settled in and about two hours later uh when the when the planes hit the towers the barracks erupted and my buddy and i who were new thought that they were messing with the new guys so we locked the door and went back to bed and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh we f- we found out a couple hours later we woke up what happened um and i'm like a lie i was nervous i was scared i said i just graduated infantry school am i supposed to be ready for this um but in hawaii i did three deployments before i went to iraq um they were just we did a udp to okinawa i'd spent a lot of time in southeast asia for my first three deployments uh, and then my fourth one um, we weren't even supposed to go anywhere. And next thing I know, I ended up um, on September 11th of 2004, I ended up on the shores of Kuwait and then moved on up in Iraq in October and November 8th of 2004. We did the Phantom, Flu- Phantom Fury Fallujah attack um, then. So I didn't realize what a big deal it was until I got home and my parents were telling me it was all over the news. And I, you know, to me, I was just doing my job. Right. Um so we experienced pretty pretty decent combat levels there, um, nonstop every day for about four or five months, roughly. Um, and then from there, that's that's kind of when I took a break from from the fleet Marine Force. Um, did some rifle range coaching. I did. I came back to the fleet. I'm sorry. Then I recruited. Came back to the fleet. Did one more deployment, and then from there I left, and I just kind of stayed in an instructor role from then on out. Um, not intentionally, it's just how my career path worked out. So, um, yeah, so I've experienced peacetime service, wartime service, back to peacetime, instructor roles, combat operations. Um, I, it, 
yeah, I look back and I, I didn't even realize how much stuff I had done and was doing and experienced until I, you know, finally was forced to take a step out and look at it. And I was like, oh man, I, I did a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, was recruiting duty seen as good duty in the Marine Corps? Uh, no. Uh, well, it depends on who you talk to. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, mainly I'm a people person. Uh, Seth will tell you, I've, I've got the gift of gab. I like chatting with people. <laughs> um, infantry Marines, um, are known for just being these rough, tough, you know, non politically correct bull in a China shop type of people. Um, but I had a sergeant major tell me one time, he's like, I've never heard an infantry guy talk to people the way you do. Um, and not that I was being persuasive. I, I took it very, uh, very personally on being honest with the people that I did recruit um, because I, I heard all the, I know all the rumors recruiters uh, will lie to you and promise right. you a whole bunch of things. And I, I made it a point not to be that recruiter. Um, and it actually paid off a buddy of mine, ran into a guy I recruited on ship one time and I'll never forget this kid, Brian Dean. He wanted to be infantry. I explained to him how hard it is, you know, first couple of years, you know, they're not going to be the greatest, you know, you're just gonna be low man on totem pole doing, you know, Low man told him old jobs. And uh, he ran into him on ship and he says, oh, how do you like it? And he goes, oh, I'm hating my life, you know, because he's just on ship doing low man stuff. <laughs> and he goes, didn't Sergeant Dembo tell you about this? He goes, yeah, he told me, but I didn't want to listen. So <laughs> like, I took that. I took that. I said, all right, I did my job. He said I told him exactly what was going to happen. And it did. So, <laughs> Well, how easy was it for you to meet your recruiting mission? The reason I'm curious about it is you might have heard in the Army right now, we're having a, a heck of a time. Meeting a quote, I think we we're we we're short twenty five percent. What was it like for you recruiting for the Marines at the time you were doing it? Uh, I was doing it from oh seven to ten, so we were right in the big um, push to increase the numbers. Um, I'm gonna say it was it wasn't super easy, um, but it also wasn't super difficult. Um, and I think the reason for that for me is just because of the way I approached the job. Um, I, you know, it was at the time where, uh, president Obama had just been elected. Um, I'm sorry, when I first got there, president Bush was still the president and I had to deal with a lot of, I'm not, uh, I don't want to fight a war for this president. And, you know, I just, there was just some obstacles I had to go through. Um, and, and that hurt my mission a little bit, but not for my numbers wise. I always was able to make my numbers. Um, and I, I, you know, I, um, I put that towards my honesty to people. I said, look, I'm not going to lie to you. This is, this is the deal. You know, people would always say, can you promise I won't go to combat? And I said, no, I can't do that. I'd be lying to you if I said that, you know, I just said, this is what I can tell you. This is how things work. You know, and these are the experiences and stuff you're going to get, you know, but I can't make promises like that, you know? So, and, and people appreciated that, you know, and sometimes that honesty said, well, because you can't promise me, I, I'm not going to join. And I said, all right, I, you know, I respect that. And I made good with the community. Um, the schools I worked in loved me. I went in, I was very respectful with them. I followed their rules. You know, they always invited me out to stuff. Um, you know, and I worked well with the guy. I enjoyed talking to the young kids, you know, whether it was about the military or just about their life. And, you know, I just, I was trying to be a role model and a mentor, whether they joined or not. That sounds like a good way to do it. And a good way to generate some goodwill in the community and not generate some simmering resentment over being yeah. lied to. Yeah. Right. Well, yeah. Well, Seth, what was it like for you? Was it a similar path? Oh, sorry, my dog was in the background here shaking as soon as you asked me that question. 
It's kind of funny, like, you know, listening again to Andy, you know, we've spent a lot of time talking ever since we um, met uh, through the MSW program at Wayne. Um, like we were in a lot of ways, we were like sort of ships passing through the night in our careers. Uh, but we definitely had different paths because uh, I was one of those guys I went in. I, I extended for eight months because I wanted to do uh, another deployment. I was also infantry. And, uh, you know, I got out of uh, 2009. And then I, within six months, I was in uh, in Western Michigan University. You know, I was always a heavy reader as a kid. Uh, I would get in trouble for reading too much in class if that's possible. Uh, so if that tells you anything. Um, but yeah, when I went in the infantry, I figured, um, if you're going to do anything, you know, you're going to want to be with the best. You're going to want to do what military men are supposed to do, which is you hold a rifle, you hike, you, 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 you go forward. And, uh, so the infantry was the only option for me, but it was kind of funny talking about recruiters. It reminds me of. Uh, when I went to MAPS in uh, Lansing and I did the test, I, you know, did the ASFAB, I got like an 89 and I didn't even study for it or anything like that. And it was, I think it was still had another year or so to go. I was early, um, early entry. And the recruiter looked at my scores and he was a former scout sniper. So he, he, know, he knew what it was like to slog through the mud for years. And he looks at it and, and we'd gotten to know each other a little bit too. And he said, are you sure you want to be in the infantry? And I was like, yeah, like, you know, we've talked about this. I don't want to do anything else. And he says, you can qualify for anything in the Marine Corps. Are you sure? And that was the last time he asked me. And it was kind of funny because I look at my time. I'm very proud of my infantry experience. You know, I couldn't be prouder. Um, even some of the not so good memories that I have, uh, they teach me something and I'm able to look back at my time and I can relate to veterans who are in need. Cause you know, me and Andy both are interns at the VA. Uh, we want to continue working with veterans and, and military communities and families and having those experiences, uh, even the, the good times and the bad times it all contributes to my ability to be able to, um, to relate to people. But so I got out in 2009 and it's kind of funny because I think Andy, based on, on his timeline, he's probably about two years, maybe three years older than me. And he went in the Marine Corps probably about a year and a half, two years before I did. So he went to Fallujah when my senior Marines and my platoon were in Fallujah in 2-1. And then they came back and, and within weeks of them coming back, that was when I was part of the boot drop from SOI. And so imagine, you know, you're a new boot and you're running into these battle hardened Marines who've been through one of the most uh, difficult and historical urban battles in Marine Corps history. And the platoon was like depleted because they had casualties and everything. And it was a little bit intimidating, you know, but um, you know, I, I did my two deployments, 2005, uh, in Alambar province. Um, that was kind of like the last of the kinetic operations in Iraq. After that, it was all like Sasso. And, um, 
and in 2000 and I had the same kind of thing. It was like Thanksgiving. We got done with a, a massive operation um, in a couple of cities and Thanksgiving, you know, we, we made it back to um, Al-Assad air base and we were able to have like a Thanksgiving meal and stuff and call our families and everything. And we're calling, everybody's calling their families and they're telling us we're seeing your, you guys on the news. And it is a weird feeling to you go out, you do this thing, and then you come back and you're on the news. Um, but I did my 2008 deployment. Um, I extended for that. And we did personal security detachment for the State Department. We were tasked with that at Camp Fallujah. We were the last of the Fallujians. They even made t-shirts for us because they closed <laughs> the base. Um, it was really kind of funny. So that was... Uh, a year-long deployment and um in both of those deployments i was i was a pretty relatively lucky person depending on how you look at it it was always a weird situation of one company turns left and my company turns right and that company loses 20 guys you know or one patrol goes out from one unit the day before to a place we were supposed to go to the next day and they lost five guys right you know it, it was throughout my entire marine corps experience especially overseas stuff like that would always happen um to this day i don't really know what to make of that you know but when i got out of 2009 i went straight to college uh and i loved it i mean i got to throw myself i was taking courses i was told i wasn't supposed to take because i wanted to i loved it um don't you know this is public so i can't say don't tell anybody but i even took a dance class which was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, but, uh, I, you know, so, you know, Andy continued on with his career and he's, you know, he was kind of like a, more of a lifer. Right. And, uh, I got out, you know, and I still had a lot of unresolved things before getting out. And, and as we all know, the transition process for people getting out of the Marines is it was, and in many ways still is, unless someone proves otherwise to me is is a bit of a nightmare you know sure and so when i got out i had a i had legal issues you know i i'd had uh interactions with the court system um through sheer luck i was i never did time so i was i was never incarcerated but i had some misdemeanors on my record uh while i was in the marines home on leave and then shortly after um but the more I got involved with the idea of suicide prevention and social work and, and public service, things started to get better for me. And I started to get pulled more and more into the realm of, of doing research and, and working with communities, working with my own Native American community. And, um, you know, it, it was, it was extremely rewarding. And so as you know, fast forward to these years where, uh, you know, while, while Andy was teaching people how to not shoot themselves in the foot um, and, and, and doing all that, I was kind of progressing through different uh, working in some different roles in mental health. I worked with individuals with developmental disabilities, I've uh, worked with at-risk youth. I've worked on um, like health disparities studies and, and I did a little bit of teaching at Western Michigan. And that was all very fulfilling. And I started to get more and more hooked in the idea of of research and writing and, and advocacy for mental health and, and health disparities in different communities. 
So we moved over here to Detroit in 2018 because my wife got accepted as a medical student at Wayne State. And uh, I worked in suicide prevention for a couple of years in this area. And then I, it hit me that I needed to climb the ladder a little bit more. So I went back to school, got more involved in social work. And not long after I started, um, you know, Andy, I, don't, I can't remember if you remember who, who it was. Was it Michael that put us in touch, I think? No, it was uh, Mark. Okay. Yeah, Mark. So he, so one of, one of our professors put us in touch with each other and we chit-chatted. And then there's also one or two other folks. And we started to create a small rebellion, I guess, at Wayne State <laughs> University in many ways, right? Um, you know, because, you know, with social work, uh, you you kind of get this idea. People have their perceptions of what social workers are, what they look like, and and what they do, and all that. And and we are really all for the idea of military folks being more involved in in being social workers and and uh, mental health professionals and advocates and writers and and all of that, or or leaders in government or something like that. Because if you know if it's not going to be us helping us, who's it going to be at the end of the day? Right. You know. So. Andy, are there a lot of vets at the school that you and Seth are going to? Does Wayne State have a strong veteran culture? Um, I think they do. They have they have a, a student veteran organization. I'm not sure exactly how many members are part of it. I know since I've been in the social work program, Seth and one other person I met um, were actually are actually vets. So I the the veteran population is not high in the social work program that I'm aware of. I know how do, you, other... how do your classmates, I'm sorry to interrupt no, Andy. No. How do your classmates react when they find out that you and Seth are vets? Uh, me, I've had a good, great experience. Honestly, um, they, they like listening to my experiences and my stories. Um, they're very supportive. Um, sometimes they ask, you know, they ask questions, um, you know, just kind of like, oh, what'd you do? Where'd you go? You know, stuff like that. Surprisingly, I I don't think I've ever gotten the closest thing I've gotten anything borderline. It's not even borderline for questions, but was have you seen combat? Right. Um, and and I just say, yeah, I have. And, you know, I, I don't have any problem talking about it, um, but I don't get the how many people have you killed question, you know, stuff like that. that sure. That, that some people will ask. I, <laughs> that, I I went and talked to like second graders when I was young in my career. I knew it, uh, a neighbor of mine was a teacher and she said, you know, can you want to come talk to my students? I was like, sure. And, and these kids, they were hilarious. Um, but they, uh, hey, did you kill anybody? What gun did you use? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, you know, but I, I was, you know, I say, Kyle, I said, you know, I don't talk about that. You know, I talked about the guns cause that, you know, that was fine, but just tell them what I, you know, what I carried. Um, but the you know the teacher you know she I think she got a little upset and I told her I said it's okay I was like they don't know they're like no, seven they're and kids eight, yeah yeah seven and eight year old they you know they're very curious um I said it's fine don't don't even worry about it um but yeah so yeah I've had a great experience being a vet um and then when they hear what I'm working on um you know because I'm I'm studying the moral injury path and right. it's it's funny because most of my instructors are like, oh, what is that? Like, I'm teaching the instructors what it is, um, and they find it fascinating. 
So, but yeah, yeah, yeah. that's my, that's my experience so far. How about you, Seth? Are your experiences at Wayne State similar? It is, you know, it's, and this is the second time I've been, because the Western, there was a, they prided themselves on having a very active uh, student veteran organization. And they were, they were, they were pretty active over there. And, um, you know, you can definitely see, I think some veterans, and, and I've experienced this too, sometimes I'll do this as well. You'll sort of like um, operate under the radar, you know, unless someone asks you, yeah. you don't necessarily bring it up, you know, and it's at first it was more because I don't want to have uh, have to answer questions where like, I'm just going to call them sometimes stupid questions, I guess, or, or sometimes they're a little bit, uh, uh, what's the word for it? It's kind of basic questions, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, have you seen combat? Have you killed anybody or something like that? But after a while I started to be a little bit more secure and being able to just look someone in the eye and say, yes, no, or I'd rather not talk about it right. or, or something like that. But the social workers in particular, they, they've been pretty open to learning, you know, and I think that they really, when I'm in the different classes and we talk about military and veteran issues, they're really thankful that they get firsthand information. And there are nuances that unless you've been in the military, there are nuances of military culture and the realities of military life that you're just never going to understand. You're never, and that's not a bad thing. That just means we have to share with each other our experiences. And uh, the other students, <clears throat> they've been pretty open. And, uh, and I am grateful for that. And we try to advocate, you know, this is the, this semester is the first time Andy and I have been in the same class together. So it's a little bit, I think it's overpowering for some of the other students, <laughs> for some of the other students. So that's a whole lot of Marine in one classroom. It's a, yeah. It's a lot. And two infantry guys too, no less. And, um, but you know, people, people really enjoy it because, um, a lot of the military and veteran issues, you know, they do cross over in some instances pretty easily to really serious civilian related issues. Um, so I think it's great to be able to advocate and educate and uh, have critical conversations because the field of social work is, we talked about this the other day, I think it's 47% of the direct, like direct care experiences that are provided to people in the military, uh, DOD are from social workers. So wow. by far the majority profession that is involved in providing services and prevention and all that are social workers. So this it's a big stick to wield. And so like me and Andy are trying to make sure that we're um, supporting and advocating for having really knowledgeable and effective social workers and hopefully veterans who want to become social workers. I think that's really important. Seth, when you were making those points, it made me think of the article in Havoc Journal, which is how we, we all got connected. When you're talking about if anyone is going to save us, it's us. You made that point in the article and it was mentioned here. I think that's absolutely accurate. And I'd like to talk, first of all, about your bearded battalion that you mentioned in there. I, I, I know our audience can't see, but both of you do have some fabulous facial hair. I, however, am more of a neck, neck beard person, so I, I keep my face shaved. But can you talk to us a little bit about 
the Bearded Battalion and how the veterans work together, both at Wayne State and just in general on these issues that you discussed. And then I'd like us to start talking about your project in their words. So Seth, maybe you can start us off on those and Andy, you can chime in as well. Yeah, it's, um, you know, Andy used to actually have more hair on his face. I think his wife forced him to shave it off or something. <laughs> um, and maybe when you get to 05 or above, you're not allowed to be bearded anymore. I don't know if that's on the rule of the military. So I'm sorry for that. You, sh you should have gotten busted down more and you'd, you could look scruffier. Um, but uh, what some, something that I've noticed, I think Andy has noticed too, is that there is a, I believe that there is a, uh, I don't have any research behind me at the moment to, to prove this, but I believe that there is like this movement of veterans, especially younger veterans from kind of the OIF uh, era, who are realizing that they need to explore intellectualism and different professional uh, avenues to support a mission that they started when they were in uniform and uh, feel like they need to complete. And I'm, I'm sort of speaking for myself with that. It's kind of a, a feeling um, of, of service that goes beyond when you were in uniform and we're recognizing that, um, you know, there, there's a lot of different avenues to, to pursue service to the veterans and to our own community. And we have a few other ones, you know, they're not here today, but you know, there's Zachary, who's uh, using a master's program with uh, uh, more of a statistical health research focus. Uh, there's another student from a biomedical program and he's gonna go be a MD once he gets done with that, I believe. So there's, there's uh, several psychologists that I've run into, psychology students. So I believe that there is kind of this movement, you know, this sort of like bearded battalion of these gruff kind of veterans who are realizing. Um, and of course, our friend Richard just graduated from a psychology program in Maryland. Um, well, talk about a bearded person, right? He, he takes it. He makes me look <laughs> like nothing. Um, but we're realizing we have to understand human nature and we have to, to dive into it to understand how to help our own community. And uh, it's really enjoyable because you can not only get together with people who are, who are intellectually robust persons and are naturally curious, but also reflect the culture from which we come. For and sure. So, so it's really great. I, I want to support it more and more. That's why we started on campus a new registered student organization called the Ian Fishback Society, and it's named after Ian Fishback, uh, the former... Army major who was the whistleblower for the prisoner abuses right. in Iraq, right? And uh, you know his, and he tragically passed away in recent years. And I didn't realize that. I didn't realize he'd passed. I'm I'm very familiar with him. Instant name recognition. I didn't know he was gone. Yeah, and he, he was a native Michigander. Uh, he actually grew up, was born and raised not far away from my tribe, and uh, not far from Sault Ste. Marie, and. Uh, when you read his dissertation, there's a, another colleague that sent me his dissertation from U of M. He got his PhD in philosophy and he used to be an instructor at West Point. And he's really kind of like an exemplar of this idea of like the what it really means to be like a warrior intellectual. And um, so in honor of him, we named our organization the Ian Fishback Society. And, and it's it's a theme that we all try to pursue. Uh, 
where we kind of married together that idea of our military service and that that warrior ethos with uh, rigorous intellectualism. Yeah, Ian and I taught in the same department at West Point. Our times did not overlap. I never met him, but I certainly knew who he was. And I think it's a great tribute to his legacy that you've named your project after him. I think that's really cool. So, Andy, any more thoughts on Bearded Battalion before you start talking to us about the in your in their words project? Um, not really. I, <laughs> I I like how Seth calls it the Bearded Battalion. <laughs> like I think what it is, and this is this is no data to back it up. Like Seth, uh, my personal thing. Um, I I grow my beard out because for seventeen and a half years I wasn't allowed to. <laughs> right. So it's like a like a tiny little rebellion for myself where it's like. I don't have to, and you can't tell me. So, <laughs> but yes, I, I know I try to grow it out a little bit longer. I like it a little longer, uh, but my wife does not. So she makes me keep it nice and trim. So that's, <laughs> that's the deal we have. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. So in their words, can you talk to us about what that project is about and why you started it and what you hope to accomplish with it? Um. Yeah. So Seth actually got it going. Seth is, Seth is a point man on a lot of the stuff that we do together. Um, Seth, I'm glad I met him because he's very, very smart and intellectual in all the reading he does. Whereas I, I'm not a big reader. I have to force myself to read. Um, but what it is, is, and Seth back me up here or correct me, but it's, we wanted to raise awareness on the mental health, um, you know, issues that veterans have. Uh, the main three topics are suicide, moral injury, and PTSD. And we're going to put some excerpts in there on that. But the main thing we want is contributors to other veterans in their words, uh, hence the title. We don't we don't want them to feel like they have to water anything down. We we feel that the you know the general public needs to hear what we have to say, whether it's our experiences, our viewpoints, um, things we're dealing with. But we want to hear you know down and dirty, unfiltered, uncensored, raw, emotional stuff of you and your story as a veteran. Um, Cause some of these, sometimes these topics are hard to talk about. Uh, and, and on the, even more than that, sometimes they're hard to listen to. Um, we did a screening for like, uh, I think I mentioned before on almost sunrise documentary of Tom Voss and Anthony Anderson uh, army vets. And they were struggling through some stuff. And they just put some rucks on their back and marched from Wisconsin to Los Angeles to try and clear the heads and try and figure some stuff out. They were in some dark places and, you know, this was their last resort. And when we got, so we put this out and it was it two people, I think showed up as we were going to do, a, <laughs> we were going to do a screening and have a question and answer panel oh. with an expert panel. And Anthony joined us virtually. Seth and I were there, um, our panel, um, I'm going through a combat veteran certificate course at MSU. Uh, my two instructors showed up and our buddy Rich came over from Maryland to do this. Uh, and a, a clinical psychologist from the VA came and talked to us. So what we did, since only two people showed up, we adapted and overcame and we just turned it into a roundtable discussion. Nice. And it, you want to talk about raw, unfiltered talking about this stuff. It's deep and it's emotional and it's very triggering, as they say nowadays, to some people. Um, but it was for us, for like Seth, myself, and Rich, it was it was very therapeutic um, because you know it was it was the safe space where we weren't there to be judged. We were there to just get our story out, and we just 
we talked about our, you know, some experiences we had. Um, we talked about our theories on things, things we read, we compared theories. I think, you know, we debated a little bit on some things. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, the, these are the things that we want in, in the book, in their words, because veterans need to be heard and they need to be listened to and maybe not necessarily fully understood right away, but just, this is what it is. Cause I've noticed I'll, you know, people ask me things, I'll tell my experience and I can see the uncomfortableness, you know, creeping in. Right. Like, I don't know if I want to hear this and I'm still working on, you know, the way I, I, uh, I portray the information. Um, but sometimes I get a little tired of trying to, you know, tiptoe around the hard stuff. And it's like, no, this is, you want to know, this is what it is. This is my experience. This is what I went through. If you really want to know, this is how it, this is how I'm going to tell it. Um, so that's, that's what I'm trying to get out of this is just raise awareness from the veterans viewpoint on what their story is. So Seth, Andy seems to be attributing this idea to you. Is this something that you came up with? What what was the genesis of it? Well, it's, it really came up. So my, in addition to everything that, that Andy is saying, I thought, I don't think you can echo um, the need for advocacy anymore and it mixes in with all the other um, all the other motivations for this my my earlier background for before coming to social work was anthropology cultural anthropology i got a master's from western michigan and, and that's where i did my suicide research with my tribal community and and as i was going through that educational program and through that experience i started to realize really strongly that people's words and their lived experience were simply not represented and research and policy and how it's written, um, we are overwhelmed and just inundated as a society with statistics. Uh, you know, how many times, you know, as as an officer, as an NCO, as as just a community member, are we told something by an expert and they pull up an infograph with pie charts and bar graphs and things right. like that? But at the end of the day, where are the words of the service members and families? and survivors right and a reason that that is really important aside from the very important um uh, motivation to to simply listen to take the time to listen empathetically to individuals about their experiences especially if they're service members serving our country and, and doing everything for us is that when you sanitize these really serious events like suicide of of culture you know, how many times we see in the news all the time, uh, like special operations has been in the news a lot with, you know, we have a culture of this, a culture of that, or, you know, there's there's different uh, scandals and stories and, and, you know, talking about recruiting that affects recruiting as well uh, with those kinds of stories in military news. Well, they they pull up people, I say they, as in the research community mainly, uh, but the research uh, that is brought out is, uh, it, it lacks the qualitative aspect of experience where people are talking with each other and learning information about people's biographical experiences, their interactions with certain social structures. The military is one big social organizational structure, and it has its own culture within it. And we fail to ask the question about how does that culture reflect or impact people's behaviors and these serious issues that we see. Right. And so 
it's, you know, at, at this point in my life, I, I think I sound a little bit like a broken record with some people, but I think that it's, it's a, a song that must continue to be played until something changes because overwhelmingly it's uh, whenever we say we want to learn about suicide or mental health or PTSD or moral injury, we use surveys. It's quantitative closed ended questions. Well, what is, I mean, those are useful to a point. They can zero in on trends that we need to focus on. You know, like, uh, you know, this year we had this number of suicides and, and this year this this number of mental health issues was associated or correlated with this, this type of risk factor and stuff like that. So they can help zero you in, right? But as far as how how people's values are involved in that, type of behavior and what those values are and then how we could apply an understanding of cultural values to interventions and policy changes that's, that doesn't happen. Um, and so this, that was a big motivation for this book as well, because we need the research community, the policymakers, government leaders to pause and to listen to veterans and military uh, service members and military families. I always, we always consider like family members and all that. They're a part of the military community. Not this, not just people in uniform. Um, we need to hear about their experiences and interactions with the mental health care system. And I'll just give you a brief example of something I'll, I'll probably be writing because this is this project is still in construction, um, and we're taking contributors too, which hopefully we'll be able to talk more about. Um, but when I went. Um, after my first deployment, I had seen some of my fellow Marines and some of my senior Marines having a lot of issues with anger, issues with their families. You know, they were young fathers and and, and I noticed where they were going. And um, then I started to have some nightmares myself, right? And started having issues being out in public. And, um, and I started thinking, you know what, it would probably be wise to nip this in the bud. So I went and I asked for uh, help. I went to the BAA, BAS, the base aid station. And after being made to wait for quite a while, they let me in to see the doctor. And he, the first words out of his mouth were, are you trying to get out of the Marine Corps? Yikes. And, I, and his reasoning, I said, I said, no, sir. Uh, actually, I'm trying to go back to Iraq if I can. You know, I'm I'm trying to get as many deployments and as because that that's what I thought my job was. You know, yeah. Um, and he said because when you talked to the corpsman earlier, you used a lot of words that that sound very technical, like you've been looking them up. And I said, sir, I can't help that I'm well read. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm a smart marine. Come on. Yeah, it's like you know, I I can use more than three letter words. I know there's stereotypes out there, but let's let's it's kind of ridiculous. So. You know, I, I kind of wrote it off. I figured, you know, worst case scenario, I'm going to get in trouble for this. Best case scenario, they forget I ever opened my mouth and they'll leave me alone. And then I think it was a month or two later, I got called back and they said, well, we have an appointment with you with a psychologist on base. She made an attempt at a assessment. And now being a clinical professional, looking back on that, there's a lot more that she could have done. But then I, I was told later on when I went to go to a therapy, one of one of many therapists I've actually gone to since getting out. Um, 
it was explained to me that they take a lot of care in the military with diagnosing with PTSD, even though I was told I had symptoms of PTSD. Because if they do that, they're on the hook for providing treatment and possibly porting you out. So they avoid that. Right. So it's these structural problems that unless you are in it and you live through it and you can tell people about it, you'll never know about it. And a survey is not going to tell you about that. You have to interview people. You have to understand their experiences on the ground. So that's a big motivation for this book. So, Andy, if folks want to support this project, I we have your contact information in the article on Havoc Journal. I'll put the link in the show notes. Can you explain what kind of things specifically that you're looking for if someone wants to make a submission? Um, yeah, it's just the guidelines are in there um, for it. Uh, if they want to write an essay, a poem, they want to draw a picture that simulates, you know, that, um, in, uh, how do I say this? That signifies something for them. Sure. Like a little caption. Um, if they want to be anonymous, they can, um, if they don't want their name on it, um, it's just something to tell their story in their words. Um, send it to Seth and I just so we can review it. Um, we, you don't need to have the full thing done right away, but just sort of like a proposal, you know, paragraph or less. So what you would like your little chapter or section to be about, um, May 1st is the deadline we're looking at right now. Um, just so we can get it, you know, see what we get gathered all together and see how the, how the project's going to turn out. But at the end of the day, it's, what do you have to say about your time in the service? What do you have to say about your, your mental state? right now what do you have to say about how you were treated while you were in since you've been out you know through the va system through private practice um did this affect your time while you were in and they don't necessarily have to be bad stories i mean you could write about your experience about how you had a great time um you know i we all it, you know being in as long as i was i had my ups and downs you know i try not to focus on the downs i i mean i i loved my time i didn't want to get out when i did um, I just couldn't continue physically. Um, I would do it all over again. You know, um, you could write something like that if you wanted to. It's just letting the public know your story on how you experienced your time in the service and after. You know, and it's same with uh, Seth brought up the family members. We want family members to tell because we need to hear their side as well. Um, because some people don't realize how how much it can affect the family so that's really in a nutshell what we're looking for is just what's your story what do you got I, to tell everybody that makes a lot of sense it sounds like something this is any veteran or family member can submit too i hope we get a lot of submissions for this i think it's a great project so what is your policy on pre-publication so for example someone writes something on their blog and posts it would you still run that or does this have to be completely new and original yeah, that's a really good question. We're going to have to make sure that we double check with our uh, publisher. But if it has been previously published, as far as Andy and I are concerned, um, you know, it's okay for it to be published on a blog or, or elsewhere and then republished, you know. Um, but we, we really don't want people to, uh, we want to take the pressure off people. I think that some people get really pressured when it comes to what do I write? How do I write? Sure things like that. What format do I write it in? Um, is this a good, good paper, a good essay? Is it, 
you know, it is what you make it. And we want to take the pressure off of people to tell their story as they see fit. Um, and, uh, but yeah, if someone, if someone has published, unless they published with somebody and they signed an agreement, with, right. uh, you know, then that's a bit of a different story, but you know, we're also trying to publish open access with, uh, with Rutledge. Uh, and they are very interested in this. Uh, they've been uh, bugging the crap out of me for making sure that we're <laughs> staying on top of it because they, you know, the editors that I'm working with are very passionate about this. I've worked with them before on suicide um, publications and uh, they really want to see this project through. So we're trying to make it all open access and uh, we're fortunate enough where there's also some funding to make sure that that happens as well. Very uh, nice. So, very nice. Okay. Well, Andy, earlier in the show, you mentioned that you're studying moral injury. And I was interested in the comment you made about how some of your professors perhaps weren't as familiar with the concept of moral injury. For for me, someone who's not in your profession, I don't remember seeing a lot of stuff about moral injury popping up in the in the media until relatively recently. Is this something that's kind of new, this concept of moral injury? Uh, yes and no. So Jonathan Shea originally coined this phrase uh, in his book. Uh, which one is it? I'm sorry, uh, Achilles in Vietnam. I think it was in '94. Um, it didn't gain a lot of traction. It kind of went to the wayside until about 2009, when Brett Litz and his colleagues started writing about it again. They have slightly different definitions, but the the basis of it is it's a violation of someone's morals and their ethics and their values. Um, it's rooted in that, whereas PTSD is rooted in fear. So the therapies they have for that, um, you know, have, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. PTSD rooted in fear, a traumatic event happened. It scared them, they're fearful of it, so they try and forget it. They try and forget it ever happened. So the therapies for PTSD make you face that fear to let you know that it's, you know, you're going to be okay. It's facing the fear, so you overcome the fear. Moral injury, since it violates your morals, um, you don't need to try you, you're not trying to face it anymore uh, because you're constantly thinking about it. You're ruminating over it nonstop. All right. This is where your guilt and your shame comes from of something either you witnessed, you did uh, something that uh, a leader gave you a, an order that you had to follow through. Or they made a bad decision um, and it, it's not going to affect you right away. Um, and these events, when they happen, initially, they're called uh, PM i.e. is a potentially morally injurious event. And after a while, uh, it can be six months, it could be a year, it could be a couple years, um, it really starts to affect a person and they start feeling down about themselves, depressed, they feel guilty, something could have been done different, they think bad of themselves. Um, if they were a religious person, they could lose their faith, um, things of this nature. So when you're looking at a moral injury, that's where they separate. Uh, I have a Venn diagram. Obviously, I can't show it here because it's all audio, but it shows the difference in the symptoms. And there's a couple overlapping, um, like anger is one that overlaps because you're angry. You could be angry at something that triggers your fear, or you could be angry at this event that happened. And then as it starts affecting the person, they that's when it becomes a more, you take the P off and it becomes a morally injurious event, which will then turn into a moral injury. And at this point, some of the therapies that are coming about uh, they're focused more around forgiveness and acceptance, you know, basically re reemphasizing you're not a bad person, you know, forgiving yourself, 
um, for something that you did. Yeah, you did what you thought was right at the time. Um, it doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't make you a um, a non-follower of of your deity, whatever it is anymore. Um, accepting the fact that it happened. Um, ACT is the one. It's called acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, you accept that it happened and moving on from there. So these are all forgiving, acceptance, and coping mechanisms to help you heal, to show you that you still are a good person. Um, I, I had my my incident. It would just be a, a potentially more like syndrome event. Incident happened in Iraq. I was very angry um, at my leader for for what had happened um, because of the situation I was in. Uh, I thought he did something wrong, and and I was angry for a long time about this. And so finally, I started learning about this forgiveness stuff. Um, and this his would be called an others directed. And I realized I needed to forgive him. I never able to, was able to speak to him. I don't even know if he would know I was mad at him. But in my in my heart, I forgave him because I started I put myself in his shoes. He made a call based off the information he had. And the information he got was wrong. So it wasn't his fault. Right. He's not a bad person. So I I came to peace with that. You know, so I, I consider myself lucky in that aspect. I didn't, you know, develop a moral injury. But th- it's things like that. And, you know. It, they just fester and fester and fester. And you just have when you when people can learn about it and understand the difference of how the moral injury affects a person versus PTSD, then they can find the right therapy. So that's a long answer to say it, it in the grand scheme of things on how mental health uh, issues and care is going. Yes, it's still fairly new and a lot more stuff is starting to gain traction on, on what moral injury is and how we, how we can help uh, veterans with this. That was a great explanation, Andy. Thank you. So, Seth, did you have something to add on moral injury? Absolutely. It's not necessarily to the core things that Andy was talking about, but I think this really reemphasizes the the reason why projects like In Their Words and that kind of uh, that approach to understanding veteran mental health and military mental health is so important. As it as a recent study that Andy and I uh, reviewed really carefully and spoke with the the researchers on where they did a qualitative interview component with veterans on the topic of moral injury. They learned uh, in their study that many veterans who had moral injury because of the way that they were interviewed and spoken with and the way the assessment process went when they went to the VA, they didn't bring up their moral injury, even when it was pretty strong. Um, And that just goes to the point that Andy is making where a lot of people are still not well-versed in what this means uh, and how it can be detected, how it can impact someone's life, how, um, you know, assessing for moral injury and being cognizant of it as community members and clinicians um, and have a really positive impact on people's lives by detecting it early uh, so that people can get to an effective type of treatment. And there's a lot of different types of treatments. You know, Andy said, hack, there's, there's one that, um, that I went through training for, it's called building spiritual strength. And it focuses more on when people lose faith in a higher power or uh, the idea of a higher power, omnipotent, all loving God. Um, and they have an existential crisis. So there's a lot of different therapies that are being developed, but What's really interesting to me is trying to answer the question, why would it not be paid attention to if 
it is so obvious and it, it can be i mean i when i was uh last year i was uh shadowing an assessment and there was a gentleman and i got to be careful because of course you know we work in clinical settings so we have to be careful with what we say and describe um there was a gentleman where it was very obvious that he was suffering from moral injury and i was the only one to bring it up and one of the reasons it was you know cuz talking with Andy and this being his focus, you know, you talk with people broadly and then you get to be more informed and, and things get on your radar more. So it was really on my radar and we were able to get him into a therapy that was designed for moral injury. And we actually had to go, I had to go through the training for it. I had to spearhead it and everything. And Andy's had similar experiences in, in his location in Detroit. And um, there's, a lot of work yet to be done. And I, and I really wonder why, why it's taken so long, especially when, you know, just the Vietnam veterans themselves, I mean, their whole generation of veterans and service members, moral injury is like a watermark aspect of, of their entire experience. Yeah. So why hasn't this been implemented more, um, in the VA and different settings. And also why aren't we going upstream more with teaching people when they're in the military, uh, especially in the beginning part of their military career about these different things. Well, do you have any hypotheses on why that's the case? You know, um, Andy, if you got anything to say about this, feel free to jump in. But, um, uh, I have a, I have a hypothesis or a theory or a, a viewpoint. And I'm trying to figure out how to say this in the best way possible is, and you see this a lot in the military, when you've been doing something for so long, you believe in it. And when somebody new comes by and tells you that, not necessarily that you're doing it wrong, but there's a different or a better way to go about something, they they get angry or they get upset. Okay. They They get defensive. Because they've bought into something that they believe in. And there's nothing wrong with that. I, I mean, there's a lot of things. We all have our, our things that we buy into and we wholeheartedly agree with. Um, so my basically my viewpoint is, you know, people have been buying in and doing something for so long and they feel that it's working. Um, their bias, you know, comes yeah. into play and they they don't basically they're taking it as you're telling me that what I've been doing for so long is wrong when it's not what we're saying we're just saying let's open our minds a little bit and and think outside the box and think maybe something else could be out there to help us so that was probably the, that's probably the best way I can explain that um because the clinicians we have psychologists psychiatrists social workers I mean everybody I think is doing the best job that they can with the information they have I just think sometimes we get stuck with, you know, oh, if I if I go outside the box, I could lose my job or I could lose, you know, followers. I could lose, you know, all this stuff because I've built my career or my legacy on this. And now you're you're they, they take it as, oh, now I'm telling you that you're doing it wrong. And that's not what I'm, that's not what we're saying. That's not what Seth and I are saying. We're just saying there's something else out there that we need to explore. And that's all we're trying to do. Does, if that makes sense, I hope that made sense. Yeah, and Andy is helping me sort of collect because it is. It's the question you just asked is is one I, I ask myself almost every day. Um, 
at different levels. And it's a complex question. Like why, why wouldn't we be teaching these things more upstream? And it's funny because I'm trying to uh, introduce mental health first aid. I don't know if you, you've ever done that training before or heard of it. It's great. If you get a chance to do it, it's a, a well-validated training. It's a one-day training to introduce people to the skills needed to uh, recognize and intervene and provide help to someone experiencing a mental health crisis or potentially uh, at risk for a mental health crisis. And uh, I've been an instructor before for that class. And, and I, I believe in it. I believe in those kinds of curriculum where people can be taught skills, hands-on skills as community members. And it's, it's not the only strategy, but it's a um, essential strategy for addressing mental health issues in the community. And so I'm trying to introduce this with School of Infantry in the Marine Corps. And I try to sort of slow roll it, you know, uh, contact the people who are most appropriate for it and, and at different uh, points of contact, including chaplains and everything. And my response, their response to me has been really sort of dominated by a fear-based, risk-based response. This is something new. Like Andy was saying, this is something new. We haven't done it. What if something goes wrong? Uh, is this cost beneficial? Uh, do we have the time? Do we have the resources? And uh, who are you to come in and introduce this idea when, you know, we we are handling this right now? I've even had in, in a recent uh, phone conversation with a high-level uh, official within the Human Research Protections Office in the Marine Corps say, well, what if you come in and you teach this class and you, you're talking about mental health, you're talking about suicide as a topic, and one of those Marines kills themselves after they get out of the class? Yeah, these are real conversations I have with people. I've, And so there really is, and it's not everybody, but I think on a organizational cultural level uh, with the military and and in many ways, the VA, there is a risk-averse attitude. And I think that anybody who's spent time in the military knows, or any of the government, uh, can agree with that. It's it's a risk-averse environment. You know, what can we what can we do the most of with the least amount of possible risk? And that can be when you're doing those, you know, risk management calculations, that is a good component of leadership. All leaders need to do that. Uh, and protect their people. That's totally understandable. But when you get paralyzed by risk, what you do is you lose your ability to ferret out really deeply entrenched cultural issues. And I think that's what you see with the military, you know. Um, and so that's to me, that's that's kind of like this uh, sort of paralysis effect that's going on with them. And um, yeah, that's that's one explanation for it. I'm still. As, as we talk with people and we get to know the military system and going back to military culture, it's like back to the future for me sometimes where I'm, <laughs> I'm going back and, you know, revisiting like, you know, really what did I experience the whole time and what are people experiencing now? I, I learn with every interaction. Well, one of my favorite quotes is the only thing harder than getting a new idea into a military mind is getting an old idea out. So I empathize with what you just described there, Seth. So, Andy, we're getting close to the end of the segment, but I wanted to make sure we gave both of you the opportunity to talk about where you see yourself in the future and your future plans, because I like to end on that optimistic note. So, Andy, what, what have you got going on in the future? Where do you see yourself down the road? 
This is such a loaded question, Charlie. My wife asks me this all the time. <laughs> my teachers, my fellow students, um, and sometimes I feel like I'm that kid in high school again. I don't know. Um, but it, in all seriousness, in reality, I I want to push forward with studying this moral injury. I want to expand on some of the studies that are being out there with the therapies. Um, the article that Seth talked about with the veterans um, from they were I forget it was Colorado. Um, where they their moral injury wasn't getting touched on. Um, it was just in one spot. I, you know, Seth and I talked about trying to expand that, get it more nationwide, um, so we can have more data to present to the the VA and and the public that you know this stuff needs to be assessed and taken care of. So um the the joke I have about Seth and I is um Seth is pretty level-headed. Uh, he's calm and he and he thinks about things and, and I'm the loud, obnoxious uh, bull in the china shop. Um, so I want to continue advocating um, at a policy level. The class Seth and I are in together in a policy class. Um, so I I don't like policy because how complicated it is, but then I know I need to be involved in it, and that's where I want to be. I want to be affecting change, affecting policy, and really taking care of my veteran community, uh, which gave so much to me that I just want to give back and take care of my brothers and sisters in uniform, um, you know, while they're in and while they're out. I just, you know, I, I like our military. I think our military does a great job at doing what they need to do to defend our country and others. Um, but I think we need to do a better job at taking care of them mentally. And that's where I see myself in the future is injecting myself as much as possible in the care for veterans and service members, mental health. Very nice, Andy. Go ahead, Seth. Um, really similar to Andy in that respect of like, yeah, my wife also asked me, like, what are you what are you gonna do after you get through your program? And uh, you know, it's it's kind of like we're led by passion and you're led by a motivation. You're led by like Simon Sinek, if you if you read him or listen to his stuff, he always talks about the power of why, right? And being led by a sense of purpose rather than a preconceived notion of what is possible. And uh, and so it, it's exciting and it's um, it, you know, can uh, can be very uh, I'm trying to use a family friendly word here because I know I can't see. <laughs> but it's it's exciting, but it's also like it can kind of make you tremble like a little bit too, like this wide open road of, you know, what can you do and, and trying to take the uh, limits off your ability to make a difference. Um, you know, I want to continue with research. Uh, there's a few projects coming up, you know, Andy and I are both, we always have like multiple irons in the fire, um, which is fun. And it's also very time consuming at the same time though. Um, I'm going to be working on um some different projects involving autoethnography where where I'm helping others and myself talk about our experiences and analyzing our own cultural experiences in kind of a biographical sense. Um, I want to continue on with research. I want to continue on with writing. Um, I think writing and especially different forms of writing like journalism and different forms of expression like podcasts are, they can be very, very powerful. And to make sure that I'm not, I don't want to be a career academic in the style of career academics. They live in the ivory tower and I don't want to live there. I want to be out there in the field. That's, that's the Marine in me, right? I want to be in the field. I want to be doing things, working elbow to elbow with people 
in the community and uh, and making a difference. And um, hopefully, in the in the future, I I would for myself. I I would like to start my own sort of research institute, uh, probably a private nonprofit for kind of control reasons. I think. Um, and to be able to facilitate individuals who want to go out and do things um, with improving the mental health and health and well-being of different communities, uh, especially underrepresented communities. And, you know, that's after that, maybe I'll retire finally, um, <laughs> because that's that sounds like years and years of work. And I'm already tired just thinking about it. So after that, hopefully just retiring, but also teaching. Love teaching. Uh, I got bit by the bug a little bit. And teaching is just one of the most enjoyable things you could ever do with your life. Right. So I agree. But also, you know, just, you know, I've got a a young son and uh, he's wonderful. And uh, having him be a part of the things I do and, and, uh, you know, being the kind of person that he can say, I'm proud that's my dad, you know. (laughs) That's that's, perhaps the best goal of all. Yeah. 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 Well, guys, I appreciate you being with us today. I'm really excited about In Their Words. Like I said, I'm going to put the link in the show notes, get get that going, and hope to see more of your work in Havoc Journal. And I appreciate what you're doing for the veteran community. I think what you're doing is important. I think getting that word out about the veteran community, especially letting us be able to tell our stories in our own words, is going to be something that's really important for the future. So I really appreciate it and thank you both so much and look forward to having you back on the show to talk about your projects and the book after it comes out. Yeah. Thank you very much for having us, Charlie. Uh, It was, it was an honor and a pleasure to be here. Yes. We really appreciate your advocacy and your work and and Havoc Journal. You guys work your tails off um, and the stuff you put out is wonderful. And, you know, the veterans and military community appreciate the work that all of you do. Great. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. Look forward to having you back on your show in the very near future. Thank you. You got it. Thanks, Charlie. Ladies and gentlemen, this concludes another episode of the Battlefields Podcast. Many thanks to today's guests, Seth Allard and Andy Dimbo, to our editor, Michael Neal, to our sponsors, the Epoch Times, the Havoc Journal, and most of all, thanks to you, our listeners. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Retired Charlie Fink. God bless, and until next time, good hunting on your own battlefields. <laughs>